Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 33 as we start to uh, begin down the home stretch of this book. Um, but one thing that we have all had to come to terms with um, at some point over the last four months is the reality of canceled plans. There's been trips that were planned, both domestic and international. There's weddings, there's reunions, concerts, tickets to a game, church events, graduations, things that we were planning on doing, but we had to cancel. Even the things where four months ago we would say, nothing is stopping me from going to blank, right? Something we've had on the books for months, maybe even years, right? We are, we are in a place where we plan a lot, and we plan far out, and we have things on the calendar, and we thought nothing would get in the way except um, maybe a global pandemic. Maybe that would do it. Thank you very much, year 2020. The unthinkable has happened, and it changed everything. Well, this morning, God has a surprise for Moses and the nation of Israel. Um, something that before it happened, I'm sure, was utterly unthinkable. And so we're going to just walk through this chapter this morning and see what happens. Exodus chapter 33, we'll start with verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivitites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, stop there for a moment. Um, at this point, so far, so good, right? We can agree on that. I mean, especially considering that we're coming off of last week in chapter 32, when the nation disobeyed God in an egregious way by building a golden calf, by trading in God's glory for some created thing that they now had control over. I mean, as bad as that was, okay, now it seems like we're back on track. Yes, there were some consequences to that sin that we saw last week, as there should have been, but according to this, Israel still going to the promised land, will still defeat all their enemies. They're still heading to the land, flowing with milk and honey. All good, right? Wrong. Look at verse 3 again. Let's finish it now. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God canceled his plans. The unthinkable happened. And that three-letter word, but, in verse 3, changed everything for the worst. You guys go up to the promised land, but... I'm not going with you. It's a devastating word for Moses to hear, for all of Israel to hear. But if you kind of take a closer look at those first three verses, there were some hints that something was different even at the outset when we thought everything was all good. 
Verse 1, God tells Moses, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of Egypt. Previously in the book of Exodus, God has always referred to Israel as my people, whom I have taken and rescued out of the land of Egypt. Now it's the people. Then verse 2, God said, I will send an angel before you. Again, you go back. Anytime God led with an angel or came before and, and revealed himself through an angel, he always spoke about it as my angel. And the closer look, that, it, that appearance was always a, some kind of manifestation of God himself that commentators would think that maybe that was a pre-incarnate form of Christ. That was my angel was associated with God. Now it's, I will send an angel. So the hints were there because small words matter, Right? Uh, let's say my wife, Rochelle, was um, introducing me to somebody new. Maybe it was a Sunday morning, um, and, and she meets somebody new um, uh, in the hallway, and she kind of goes and gets me. What if she brings this person up to me and says, hey, here is a husband. His name is Aaron. Here, here's a guy I want you to meet. I'll, I'll be like, uh, okay, that's bad news bears for me if that's the change in the words, right? If, if I'm not her husband, I'm a husband. Small words can make a big difference. Or you know it's something when one parent says to their spouse if their child really messed up and they said, hey, your son is up in his room and you got to go talk to him. That's all you need to know in that moment. Like, "Uh uh-oh, someone messed up. Words matter. Your son, go talk to him. This is the unexpected for Moses. God is not going with them any longer. In his commentary on Exodus, Phil Riken worded it this way, quote, They were still booked for the promised land, but God canceled his reservations. It's a problem. Let's see what happens. Verses 4 to 6. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The problem here... The problem with God not going up with Israel to the promised land was not God's anger... It was Israel's sin. Israel had broken the covenant that they ratified in chapter 24. They separated themselves from God's presence by willfully sinning against Him. Right? We, we said that last week. That's what sin does. Sin separates. Right? It's like the pulling apart of fabric. What once was joined together separates. When, when you sin against somebody or against the Lord or somebody sins against you, that you create distance. You separate. And yet, to Israel's credit in a way, they understand how disastrous this word is. And they mourn and they repent of this news that God has canceled His plans. Because think about this for a second. This is how they could have reacted. They could have heard this and go, "Um, okay, wait a minute, so let me get this straight. Uh, We still get to go to the promised land? We're still going to defeat our enemies? We're still going to benefit from the fruitful land? 
Wait, and you're saying God won't be there? Let's take it. I'll take it. When do we leave? Ironically, this is what most people want even today. All the blessings of God without the accountability of God. All the benefits of a relationship without the commitment of a relationship. Often today, God is just kind of seen as a burden, as, a, as an obstacle to our blessings. He's an obligation, somebody we got to kind of keep up with and, and keep them happy in order to get all the things we really want. And that mentality is not just prevalent in our world, it can very much sneak into our churches, right? This is, this is one of the primary problems with um, the prosperity gospel. That false gospel that is ravaging our world, both in America and we're exporting it to the rest of the world. The false gospel that says, hey, if you believe in Jesus, he will make you physically prosper. You'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and you'll be healed and you'll be strong just as long as you have enough faith. Jesus becomes a means to an end. And while here at our church we will never endorse the prosperity gospel, we even have to be honest that there can be what I would call a soft prosperity gospel that we can slip into if we're not careful. That manifests itself in this way of loving the blessings of God more than God himself. It's not wrong to enjoy God's good gifts. He is a great giver, loves blessing his children. But if we're not careful, we can slip into a love for those gifts that surpasses the giver. And in the gospel, God is not a means to an end. God is the end. The best gift of the gospel is God himself. So Israel repents. And they show their repentance by taking off their ornaments and, and off their jewelry that they had relied on for some form of self-adornment to take the possessions that have been given by God and adorn themselves, idols around their necks. And they took them off and they will not put them back on, it says, from this moment on. Let's keep going, verses 7 through 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent at first, these, um, these verses actually might seem out of place in the context of the story. In fact, some critics of the Bible will actually say that the placement of these verses, 7 through 11, show that the Bible was wrongfully edited after the fact in the makeup of Exodus. But when you take a closer look, these verses and this scene very much fits. Because this tent of meeting is not the tabernacle that Moses was just given instructions for 
to build within the nation of Israel. This is a different tent, and therein lies the point. In God's design and plan of the tabernacle, he would dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. He would be in the very center of the camp. But due to Israel's rebellion, the Lord cannot dwell there any longer. He will be outside the camp. And only Moses can experience fellowship with God. Only he now can go outside the camp, and that is what he will do to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. And he will speak to God face to face, which is not a literal statement, and we'll see why in a little bit. But it's a, it's a figure of speech to indicate that Moses alone was the one who could speak directly to God as a man, it says, speaks to his friend. And in this tent, Moses is going to ask God for three things. And that's what we're going to dig into for the rest of our time this morning. Three things he's going to ask of God. Let's see what number one is. Verses 12 to 14. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. First, Moses intercedes on his own behalf. Moses understands at least this. If God is not there, if God is not leading him, he won't be leading them. If God isn't in it, there's no hope. There's no plan B. If you take God out of the plan, there goes the plan. So he says, God, you've said I've known you by name and you've found favor in my sight, which is interesting because we never read of God telling that to Moses in Exodus. We've never seen that line spoken by God. But clearly, at some point along this journey, God did say that to Moses. And Moses is just very much dialed into the vital reality and need for God's presence. Back in January, the first sermon I preached in this series, I said that across this entire series, however long it takes us, there's going to be three words that describe God's character on repeat over and over that we're going to see. His power, His promises, and his presence. And those three are distinct, but they're dependent upon one another. That if God is powerful, but not present, then it doesn't matter. Right? If you were in a dangerous situation where you needed the police, and they were nowhere to be found, what good would it be in that moment? What good would it be if somebody said to you in that moment, don't you worry, the Ridgewood police force, they are really good. They are really powerful. They have the power to save you. And what would that power mean if they weren't there at the moment you needed them? Brothers and sisters, our view of God 
is not merely the fact that he's all-knowing, not merely the fact that he's all-powerful or that he's created all things, but it's the fact that that same God is the God who is there. Moses is interceding, asking God to fulfill the promises that he has given, knowing that he'd be faithful to do so. The best prayers are the ones that ask for and claim God's promises over your life, including the one that Moses just gave. Please show me your ways that I might know you. Please be with me. If you pray that prayer, I mean, if you kind of grow up in church and, um, for your whole life, like, that's kind of one of those prayers that you think, that, yeah, that's like the natural prayer. It's kind of a boring prayer. It's just so familiar. God, please be with me right now. You kind of say it, but you kind of just know you're just kind of using those words. Um, but that is a great prayer. It's a prayer that God loves to answer and He will be faithful to answer it every single time because He has promised it. Those moments where you're like, God, I feel like the walls are caving in emotionally and physically and financially and I just feel like I'm so alone right now. God, just be with me right now. Just show me Your ways right now. It's a great prayer. It's one He will always answer. Like He answers in verse 14, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Just like last week, this is not God changing His mind. It's not God begrudgingly being like, fine, okay, I'll be with you, Moses. It is God providentially carrying out His purpose through the intercession and through the prayer of Moses. And we'll see soon that Moses, first and foremost, all throughout the book of Exodus, uh, points us to Christ. But he also, in times like this, serves an example for us. A church, whatever path you're on right now, whatever it is you're pursuing in your life right now, what are you pursuing? Can I ask, how important is it for you that God is with you on that path? Not that you make your own plans and then hope after the fact that God agrees to tag along, but that you seek deeply to know Him, to discern His ways that would then shape your plans. Never underestimate or gloss over the peace that comes with God's presence. The same presence that led David to say in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. I'd rather be in the valley with God than on the mountain peak without Him. Moses understood. If you take God out of the plan, there goes the plan. Let's see what's second. Verses 15 to 17. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Second, 
Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. So it's interesting, in these, uh, at first glance, in these verses, it seems like Moses was not listening to what God had just told him and didn't realize that God just said, okay, I will go with you. It's like a time when you're having your argument with somebody and you're just kind of so fired up and you don't even realize it in the moment that they actually agree with you or they concede. And so you just kind of keep going. And you're like, and what about that? And what about this? And you aren't even just like completely tuning them out, just kind of fired up, right? It kind of seems like Moses is just going and can't be stopped. But we find that's not that Moses was not paying attention. In fact, he was paying very close attention to God's answer. And this is where the English language makes it a little difficult for us, and again, a little confusing at first glance. Because when Moses first said, please show me your ways and consider too this nation is your people, verse 14, God answers, my presence will go with you. But it's the singular you, not the plural. Okay, Moses, my presence will go with you you and you alone. So Moses was paying attention. And so he asks the second question, how will it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. And then Moses says one of the most overlooked lines in the Bible, and I don't say that lightly. But look down at your Bible again. Look at the back half of 16. Underline this, highlight this, copy it, and post it. He says, is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What made Israel distinct from everybody else? Was it their mass numbers and strong army? No. They were a small nation compared to other nations of the earth. Was it their land and their vast land? No, they had no land. They're wandering through the desert. Was it their long-lasting, kind of high-minded, um, royal lineage? No, they were just enslaved for 400 years. Okay, was it their good behavior and their high moral standing? No. They just made a golden calf like 13 seconds ago. So what made them distinct? And what set them apart has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God. God's presence was with them. Apart from God, there's nothing different about them than any other nation in the world. And to this intercession, God says, again, working through Moses' prayer, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. I'll go with you, plural you, all of you. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. I wonder how many of us think about ourselves as Christians and us as a church in this way. If somebody were to ask the question, what sets us apart in this world? What sets Christians apart? What makes us special? What makes us unique? What makes us, what makes us distinct? Is it our superior moral compass and behavior? No. 
Is it our riches and our generosity? Is it our ability to win arguments on social media against all the other worldviews? No. Is it our ability to understand the Bible and our lofty prayers and our lofty um, overall religious resume? No. What makes us different is the grace and love of God. God shown his grace upon us and he saved us and he is with us. And so we are valued and we are special, but it's because of him. Not us, Lord, not to us be the glory, but to your name be the glory. True Christians ought to be the most humble people because we know it's due to him. When we share our testimony, it's not just I statements. I pray that prayer. I act this way. I donate this kind of money. I do this. It's not full of I statements. It's what he has done, what he has revealed that we are who we are. A prideful, arrogant Christian, all that shows is that we're either way off track or we are deceiving ourselves altogether. It doesn't add up. And then third, let's finish the passage. Verses 18 to 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Number three, Moses intercedes to see God's glory. I don't know, perhaps Moses was just kind of feeling really confident at this point that God is granting his requests, providentially affirming his presence through Moses, and so now he just goes for it, okay? Um, In honor of the NBA starting in another week or two, this is Moses' heat check moment. A heat check is when a shooter starts feeling it. They hit two shots or three shots in a row, and they come down, and they just kind of just take a ridiculous shot just to see if it goes in, right? It's called the heat check. Please. Show me your glory. Why, why did he go for this? All joking aside, I think his intentions are honest and good. Because he wants to know more of God. He wants to see more of God. He's in this moment having this interaction. And there's this, there's this, um, there's this holy discontentment that Moses wanted more. God is the only being or thing in this world where it will never be a problem to want more of. Anything else, too much of any even good thing can quickly become a bad thing. But not wanting to know more of God. Church, he offers a never-ending, bottomless well of delight to anyone who would drink of his goodness. And God says, I will let my goodness pass by you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, all caps, baby, Yahweh. 
And then he says a line about his character that will reverberate through the rest of the Bible. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. We'll see this line again next week in chapter 34, but it will be quoted by other biblical authors more than any other line in the book of Exodus, including most famously by Paul in Romans chapter 9 when he's talking about election about God's unconditional sovereignty over salvation, that when he accepted Jacob and rejected Esau, Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. You notice in talking about election, Paul isn't trying to defend God. He just quotes God. And by doing so, he reasserts what it means for God to be God. His sovereign reign over all things is to be submitted to, not questioned. And we can do so because that was spoken in the context of his goodness So God tells Moses, I will pass by you, but you can't see my face. Again, God's not talking about a literal face, but he invokes human terms for our uh, limited understanding, right? God is saying, I will pass by, but you can't see all of me. It's too intense for any man to see all of me in all of my glory and live. It's like looking at the sun. You can see aspects of the sun. You can see the things that the sun illuminates, but you can't stare right at it. So he provides a cleft in the rock for Moses to stand in. When God passes by, where he'll see him, but not all of him. And that scene keeps us from two mistakes. It keeps us from approaching God casually, kind of stripping him of his holiness where there's kind of no reverence for his name. But it also keeps us from thinking that he's too far removed, too transcendent, where we can never actually know him or see him. For God in the Bible is holy, he is powerful, but he's good. He's gracious. And we got to keep those two together. That's what makes God, God. But as we close, we need to connect some dots here because Exodus 33 is so important to trace through the grand storyline of the Bible. Because while Moses had this incredible access to God as a mediator for the nation of Israel, um, we can get to a place where we read this and we're like, man, can you imagine? Can you imagine being that close to God and the God of the universe, to speaking to him in that way, wouldn't that be something? The church, not only is that something we can imagine, but we are in a place where Moses would have longed for. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, no, not totally. But really, he said, not yet. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. 
glory as from the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, in Christ, we see the glory of God. We see the manifold witness of God in the flesh through His Son, Jesus. Which is why in John 14, when Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Show me God. And Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus, as the greater and better Moses, also went outside the camp due to the sin of the people on behalf of God's people to want to intercede for them. He went to the place called Golgotha, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, to be crucified on a cross and die for our sin. And the God whom we have been separated by from our sin through Christ, now accepts that intercession of His Son, just like He accepted the intercession of Moses, and He providentially carries out His redemption plan that for those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, we can experience and see God. And through our union with Christ, we are no longer enemies, but we're considered friends. At the beginning of Exodus 33, God said, you guys go to the promised land, but I will no longer go with you. He canceled his plans. And now in Christ, we see the great reversal. Whereas Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were by nature children of wrath, but God, it's the great reversal, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. The plan's back on. They've been reinstated. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is with us. He has come and tabernacled amongst us. He pitches his tent inside the camp within us and us in him. And this is the good news of the gospel. Not that we just get the blessings of God, but we get God himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We, 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 we uh, lament how we so easily just... Don't think about that, Lord, how we discard that, how we go about our life making our own plans, not really regarding whether or not that you were in them or not. And so, Father, I just pray that you would uh, just let that truth fall afresh on us, Lord, that you would show us your ways, that you would allow us to grow deeper into the image of your Son, that we might know you more. And above all else, that we will know with full confidence that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that that would be the foundational motivation we have each and every day to go about our lives in whatever we do, giving glory to your name. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.